Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. Episode 238 of The Bowery Boys, Astoria and Long Island City. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we have the great pleasure to leave Manhattan for the entire episode, Greg, and explore the history of Queens County. Specifically the area, the neighborhood, known as Astoria and Long Island City. This area in northwest Queens, just across the East River from Manhattan's Upper East Side, is one of the most famous, diverse, and delicious neighborhoods in all of Queens. Now, this story will have some familiar angles on the other tales of New York City history that we've elaborated on before, the story of havens of farmland that slowly transform into busy industrial centers and vibrant residential districts. However, I do not believe that any place in New York quite shares such a complicated take on that Mm. particular history. Right, because to tell the story of Astoria, which is a favorite with Astoria historians, Greg, (laughs) as it were, um, we're going to have to widen our scope a little bit to tell the story of Long Island City and Astoria because these histories... Um, especially in the late 19th century, are inextricably linked. Yeah, not to get existential here, but re- mm. but what is Astoria? What is Long Island City? The concepts of, of what these are have sort of shifted and changed throughout the decades. However, one thing that they both of these places have in common is that they... They're both places that have benefited uh, from their proximity to the big city just across the river. Taken together, this area has a dual personality. On one hand, rapid transformation, and on the other, a very rock-solid ethnic identity that somehow contains also world-famous swimming pools, museums, and movie studios. Mm, So get comfy and join us as we tell a story of Astoria. All right, Tom, please situate on the map for us the neighborhoods of Astoria and Long Island City. Okay, well, today we're talking about two places, really, or it could be combined into one place. But first, let's start with Astoria, the neighborhood in the northwest corner of the borough of Queens. Now, this is a neighborhood that's bordered to the west and to the north by the East River. Um, And tucked over on the east side is also Little Bowery Bay, which, you know, we're both very excited about. (laughs) Yes. To the east by Woodside and to the south by Sunnyside. Now, also to the south or southwest is Long Island City. It's just, it gets a little complicated. Yeah, I'm, there. I'm sensing a little hesitation here in exactly defining the borders of these places <laughs> from you because it's quite confusing. Right. And because also those borders have changed over time because during the later part of the 19th century, Astoria was actually part of Long Island City, which we're going to get into. 
And, you know, on top of that, in the northern section of Astoria proper are, are more neighborhoods within the neighborhood of Astoria, Ditmars and Steinway, sometimes no, referred to as Ditmars Steinway. Not to mention that within Long Island City, there is, of course, Hunter's Point. That's right. And we've left out Ravenswood as well on top of that. So all of these names are going to come into the story and we'll explain when they were frequently used and today why they may not be so used. Right. Although I will just try to clear this up by saying that officially, at least, Astoria is still considered to be a neighborhood within Long Island City. That made my eyes cross a little. (laughs) So I reached out to Bob Singleton, who's the executive director of the Greater Astoria Historical Society, to explain. And he told me via email, quote, We tell people that we are in the Astoria neighborhood of Long Island City. Like the Long Island City Post Office, we follow the historic bounds for Long Island City, which corresponds with the political boundary of 1870 to 1898, which you're going to be talking Mm -hmm. about, which was comprised of the communities of Hunter's Point, Sunnyside, formerly Blissville, Dutch Kills, Old Astoria Village, Ravenswood, Steinway, and Broadway. The vague term Astoria is sometimes everything north of Queens Plaza or north of 34th Avenue and sometimes north of Broadway. (laughs) So for those keeping track at home, maybe it's just easier to think of all of northwestern Queens as the area we're going to talk about. But the names may change depending on the decade. More or less. So for those unfamiliar with the area, can you actually line it up from north to south with these these little neighborhoods, these micro neighborhoods and other names, how, they, how they're ordered on well, the map? Well, let's just stick to Astoria proper, uh-huh. the neighborhood of Astoria. The northern border of the neighborhood more or less lines up with the Manhattan map, if you were to look at the map, with, say... East 106th Street and its southern border somewhere around East 72nd Street. And a good portion of that is actually looking out across the East River to the northern half of today's Roosevelt Island. And taken together, Astoria in the north and Long Island City south of it um, are also dominated by a couple of bridges. The northern Mm -hmm. side by the Triborough Bridge and on the southern side by the Queensboro Bridge. And in very general, broad strokes here, uh, the Astoria neighborhood to the north has been largely defined by residential development, whereas Long Island City has been primarily industrial and commercial development. And I would say that the grand story that we're about to tell is how that came to be. Well, let's rewind this to the beginning, to the days of Dutch New Amsterdam. What was happening over here in this corner of Long Island, this area that we know as Astoria today? Well, way back when, during the New Netherland days, because this was not part of New Amsterdam, this was mostly forests and meadows. At some point in the 1630s, a prominent member of Governor Wouter van Twiller's council named Jacques Benton took possession of about 160 acres of today's Astoria, that piece that kind of looks like a puzzle piece sticking out into the East River. Where Hellgate is. That's right. And he erected some buildings around today's Astoria Boulevard and Vernon Boulevard. Well, you know, during the New Netherlands days, things regularly heated up with the Native Americans, 
and von Twiller was actually replaced by Stuyvesant in 1647. And Stuyvesant recalled all people living on farms and things outside of New Amsterdam back into the settlement of New Amsterdam for their protection. It wouldn't be until the next decade in 1652 when a man named William Hallett was relocating from Connecticut with his family. He took over Benton's abandoned farm there, and soon the area took on the name Hallett's Cove. Ooh, that sounds like a wonderful, like, tween drama on the CW network. <laughs> what Tween <laughs> drama? <laughs> what evil lurks on Hallett's Cove? Well, plenty of evil lurked um, on Hallett's Cove. The, the entire area was regularly being attacked, um, including Hallett's property, and he moved away for about 10 years, but came back in 1664 to purchase a much, much larger swath of land from the local tribe, which, this, which was the Staten Island and Noyak Indians. About 2,200 acres, which is virtually all of today's Astoria and Steinway. And was all that land used as a farm or an estate? Well, that's an enormous amount of land, and mm -hmm. he couldn't really cultivate all of it. But he, he did cultivate a farm, but, you know, much of it remained forest and, and marshland. But he built he built homes for his family, laid out some, some paths, and some signs of these days still remain today. For, for example, an old lane that ran between two houses on Hallett's property turned around a garden in a funny way still exists today as Welling Court in Old Astoria. And a little bit further east, a path that ran through the woods just adjacent to those farms became known as Newtown Avenue. So he's really a, the father of this region. Sounds like things are, are going well on Hallett's farm. And, as, you know, over time, he would divide up his land, cultivate more of it, divide up parcels for his growing family, and in time, his son, William Hallett Jr., took over control of much of his farm. And then his son, William Hallett III, um, had just settled on his new property, which was around today's 31st Avenue, 44th Street, and Newtown Avenue, with his new wife and their five children, when on the night of January 24th, 1708, they were murdered by two of their slaves. These two, who were guilty of the crime, were later executed, and this goes down as the first capital offense punished in Queens County. By this time, is Hallett's Cove, is it, was it a range like a small village or a hamlet, maybe? Yeah, well, the parcels were getting divvied up by members of the family, but also other farmers outside of the family were starting to buy up those properties. In fact, by 1800, only the land around Old Astoria Village was still held by members of the Hallett family. The rest had been sold off to, to other farmers. But there were signs of small community life taking place here. There were schools founded. There were churches like St. George's Protestant Episcopal Church, which was founded in 1828. And there was a doctor who moved here in 1816 who set up shop and he served the area um, with his practice until he was 90 years old. And he died here in 1860. And what was his name? This was Dr. Dow Dittmars. Dr. Dow Dittmars? <laughs> now that's your show on the CW. <laughs> that's a name. Dit and so, of course, Dittmars is a name that is well-worn in this neighborhood. That's right. Dittmars Boulevard was named after him, and then the entire neighborhood would be named after the boulevard. 
So we have this great dramatic name, which I love, Howlett's Cove, obviously. I'm just going on it. But um, how does it become Astoria? Well, that's a long Astoria. Sorry, I mean, you love Howlett's Cove. I love the Astoria fun. We're both going to overuse both yeah, of these I probably. Um, well, th- for that, we have to meet another man named Stephen Halsey. Now, he was a fur merchant who was living in the village of Flushing in the 1830s. He would take the ferry from Flushing to his Manhattan office, um, which was down on Water Street. And he'd pass by the picturesque Hallett's Cove along the way. He'd look over and see this beautiful little area, right? Quaint, beautiful residences and farms and steeples. And he thought, well, huh, this is way closer to New York than Flushing. It's just a potentially a, a quick ferry ride across the East River. So along with his brother, John, who was also his business partner, Halsey bought up all the property he could, all the farmland he could, and he started developing the land for settlement. So he sold off plots of land, essentially. Well, but he did more than that because he also saw to it that people could get back and forth to New York. And by 1840, there was a steamboat that started stopping here with continued service to 86th Street in New York. And many other boats and ferry services would soon start serving here. And he didn't stop with that. He also built turnpikes like the Hallett's Cove and Flushing Turnpike, which opened in 1835 which connected the settlement of Hallett's Cove with Flushing. And that road lives on today as Astoria Boulevard. Obviously one of the main thoroughfares through this neighborhood. Still today. But back to that name. Right. Unlike you, Halsey didn't think that Hallett's Cove really popped. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he looked across the Hellgate, uh, that treacherous body of water that bordered the this part of Astoria, to the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and to the opulent summertime residence of the city's richest man, John Jacob Astor. His thought, or at least as legend has it, is that by naming his new development after Astor, he would flatter him into putting his own money, investing in this development. Because, of course, Astor built his fortune on real estate developments. And this wasn't such a crazy thought because it had already been done uh, with the development of Astoria, Oregon. Well, that's a popular explanation for the name and one that I think I've known about for years. Right. However, there is a, a sort of counter, at least more nuanced explanation that I read in the book 300 Years of Long Island City, 1630 to 1930 by Vincent Seyfried which was that Halsey wanted to get Astor to help fund the creation of a new Episcopal female seminary in the village. So it wasn't just to get his money in to develop and make money off of Astoria, but rather to like help out in the funding of a seminary. A specific project. And so did it work? Did he invest? Well, unfortunately for Halsey, he only invested $500 in the neighborhood, uh, which was hardly enough money to build the seminary. (laughs) Uh, So they had to dial it back and just build a school. But regardless, Halsey kept the name and Hallett's Cove was incorporated as Astoria on April 12th, 1839. So John Jacob Astor didn't copyright his name? (laughs) (laughs) Clearly not. And then into the 1840s and 50s, you know, much of the early development that took place in Astoria happened around this ferry landing, which was at the foot of today's Astoria Boulevard. 
Meanwhile, just inland from here, um, along 12th Street and 14th Street, on a prominent hill, Halsey, who had connections to many wealthy families in New York, convinced many of them to build country homes, some of which are still there. And we just walked by when Mm -hmm. we were walking through the neighborhood a couple days ago. And by 1849, Halsey actually, along with other investors, went on a buying spree and picked up more neighboring farms and properties around Astoria Village, enlarging his territory. And it would be here in Astoria that that Halsey would spend the rest of his life. He had four sons, by the way, Greg, one whom he named John Jacob. Again, (laughs) after Astor. That's a little much. Halsey died in 1875 and was buried at the Reformed Church on 12th Street on that hill. So while all this is going on, something quite different is happening a little south of this area, right? Which was more marshy, at least uh, in the early days. Well, the the neighborhood uh, just south of here, Ravenswood, along the river, by the mid-19th century, was also home to some opulent country mansions. But really... That's about it. It This neighborhood ran roughly lengthwise uh, nearly the entire length of today's Roosevelt Island, if you can just imagine that, just across the river from it. And then again, by the mid-19th century, of course, there are millions of European immigrants who are arriving in New York in great waves. The Irish first, then the German, the Eastern European and Jews, the Italians by the end of the 19th century. Many settled initially in lower Manhattan, but then as they became more upwardly mobile, they moved north and to other boroughs, often following industry, Mm -hmm. right? Following breweries, following factories. So one of the places that attracted great numbers of immigrants was Astoria. And one big reason was because factories were being set up in these areas and in some cases, even building housing for their workers. And we'll get to the most prominent example of that in a second. But Tom, I wanted to spend a little bit of time south of where you have been speaking. Okay. A little bit south is an area known as Hunter's Point. Now, this had been very marshy for a lot of the period that you were talking about and was sort of underdeveloped. But by the mid-19th century, this started to become a real hub for industrial use. And so as a result, a lot of money very quickly poured into that area. And so that began to get developments and a small residential area, but a lot of political power. This is Hunter's Point, just south of the Ravenswood section with those mansions. Right. So we have Astoria, the uh-huh. newly named Astoria. We have the CW drama Ravenswood right there, <laughs> which is just a, like the wealthy aristocratic Queens part. And then finally, we have Hunter's Point, which is rapidly becoming industrial and quite important because of the arrival of the Long Island Railroad in the 1850s. Almost instantaneously, a lot of money and importance gets funneled into this little area called Hunter's Point that becomes very politically valuable. And now um, accessible. Yes. So to understand the, the next phase of the story, we have to step back a little bit to explain how Queens County is laid out. The county in the mid-19th century is comprised of five towns, Oyster Bay, Flushing, Hempstead, which portions of which aren't even in Queens today, Jamaica, which became the seat of county government eventually, and finally, Newtown. Newtown. Okay, so I had mentioned a Newtown Avenue. 
Where is Newtown today? Does it even exist? Well, yes. Uh, when the consolidation of the five boroughs happened, which we'll talk about, they changed their name to Elmhurst. So oh. the neighborhood of Elmhurst is the old Newtown. Now, the problem is the Newtown district was all of what we've talked about, Astoria, Hunter's Point, all of this particular area. But Newtown was much more inland, much more bucolic and very rural in nature. It was six to eight miles travel between Newtown and Hunter's Point. And that was long before Queens Boulevard was around <laughs> to help right. people out. It would take two hours to get between Hunter's Point and, and Newtown. But Hunter's Point was taking on an urban character. It now had the attentions of people across the water in New York City. The people of Hunter's Point started becoming quite restless with this arrangement. They were already starting to act like maybe a little bit too big for their britches and very independently. By 1855, some residents were already rebranding Hunter's Point as Long Island City, which, I mean, in a way is very aspirational. And, and it's also kind of a fake name because, of course, it is not a city. But it is on Long Island. It is on Long Island, though, yes. So in 1869, the residents of Hunter's Point petitioned the state government to become an independent city, to accrue their own tax revenues, and to determine their own fate. Okay, so 1869, Hunter's Point, that industrial neighborhood on the water, wants to become officially Long Island City. And not just... Hunter's Point, they want the entire northwestern part of Queens to become Long Island City. That would include the villages and hamlets uh, like Astoria and Ravenswood. All of that would be Long Island City. Meanwhile, down in the two main cities of New York and Brooklyn, they're looking at all this a, a little dismissively with some amusement. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle actually looked at their like petition to rebrand themselves as Long Island City. They called it a poor name. And then on June 30th, 1869, they elaborated in length in print, quote, beside the absurdity of calling a village a city, the selection of the name Long Island City shows wretched tastes and a lamentable lack of originality. Some depraved local functionaries proposed to wipe out two distinct and expressive names and substitute a secondhand and inappropriate title to be worn forever by a young and rising community. Ravenswood is a rather pretty name and not very common. Hunter's Point is not so mellifluous, but it is a distinct and expressive title. Long Island City is simply abominable. Ugh. It then concludes by proposing that the people who came up with that name be indicted and thrown into jail. That is so extreme. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> clearly that writer at the Brooklyn Daily Eagle was having like a really bad really day. Really bad day. Or they had missed their opportunity to become brand consultants. You know? <laughs> right. Well, unfortunately for that reporter, on May 4th, 1870, it was approved. The city of Long Island City was created, comprised of the village of Astoria, and many of these surrounding hamlets, including Sunnyside, Ravenswood, Hunter's Point, Bowery Bay, and many other tiny little places around here. All of it is now Long Island City. All of it. But hold on a second. What what about the people who lived up in Astoria? I mean, didn't they have some pride in sort of being residents of Astoria? Did they really want to be swept into this other settlement's 
visions of grandiosity? Well, here's where it gets really intriguing. It's the other momentous change that happens to this area in the mid-19th century. And that arrives with the sweet sounds of the Steinway Piano Factory. It would be music to historians' ears. <laughs> now, we're not going to get into the whole story of Steinway. We actually have a whole episode, episode 92, on the beginnings, the origins of the Steinway dynasty. Episode 92, which is newly reavailable yes. to you listeners. So <laughs> go for it. Go, go download that. But a quick summary. The German piano maker Heinrich Steinweg uh, arrived in America in 1850 and by the start of the Civil War was one of the wealthiest German immigrants in America and produced hundreds of pianos for the home. He had a massive plant in Manhattan at 52nd Street and Park Avenue. By 1870, Steinway, the Steinway factory was led by son William Steinway, who they had outgrown that old factory. And over the course of many years, he built a new plant and company village just north of the village of Astoria. Well, that seems like a really expensive endeavor. What was in it for Steinway Aside from getting more space, well, he could, why would he pay yeah. to build all these houses? Well, on the one hand, it was to give his employees a better place to live. More cynically, it was to kind of get them away from the Lower East Side and perhaps, you know, more progressive ideas about unionizing, that oh, type of thing. Away from the agitators? Yeah. But in moving here, he, was, he could also define the area. It was very underdeveloped outside of the village, and as a result, he wasn't just building pianos, he had to actually build up the region. The streets, the churches, the shops. The Steinways privately funded many of the roads, and many of the streets that are still around today, including, to no surprise, Steinway Street, which they actually built down to Astoria Boulevard, and then Long Island City then helped continue that. So Steinway is making pianos, but he's also making a village up yeah. here in northern Astoria. <laughs> yeah, he's, they are principally responsible for the development of northern Astoria. In fact, in the 1880s, they even developed an amusement park and a massive beer garden on the water just east of what they called Steinway Village in an old marshland once known as Frogtown. <laughs> what, I, was I, the amusement park <laughs> called Frogtown? No, it was it was called North Beach. Oh. Actually, there were so many frogs there that it kept people up at night. So they called this marshy area Frogtown. I anyway, heard a trip there was riveting. Well, I tripped to North Beach um, and was later called the Gala Amusement Park. Would have featured beer gardens, music, gaiety, festivities. It was eventually closed down because of prohibition, because that killed all the fun times. That old amusement district was then reopened as an airplane landing strip called the Glen Curtis Airport, which then became LaGuardia Airport. <laughs> that, too, was a Steinway development. I think they should rename LaGuardia Frogtown Airport. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. <laughs> Meanwhile, the city of Long Island City is developing the whole region as well because they need it to be a lot more populated and developed because they can get that extra tax revenue. That was the key to success for Astoria in general. The city rapidly grew because it was now a city, even though a lot of people in Astoria did not want to be part of Long Island City. And they were often at loggerheads with the politicos. 
down south in the sort in the governmental center of Long Island City. And in this governmental center, was it based down around the old Hunter's Point? It was. In fact, in 1874, the Long Island City Courthouse was constructed. And this was basically the center of activity for the local government. Even to this day, it's one of the oldest buildings that still stands in the entire area. Although it was gutted by fire and redesigned in 1904 by the architect Peter M. Coco. So this southern section, this Hunter's Point section, um, was getting a lot more industrialized, drawing new industries to the area, especially along the waterfront, fostering many more relationships, of course, with the big city across the river. Hmm. When is this? 1870s? In the 1870s. So that big city across the river, though, in the 1870s was famously corrupt, or at least its government was. Very, very famously. This was the Boss Tweed era. Did any of that corruption leak over to <laughs> Long Island City? I would say that this is a pure version of crime and corruption. It is one of the most corrupt governments I have ever read about. <laughs> <gasps> And that's saying a lot. That is that is saying a lot. Now, keep in mind that up in Astoria, where you still have rolling hills and respectable neighborhoods, Hunter's Point was known for gambling dens and, of course, all the vice that that attracted. These gambling dens and these vices were, of course, next door to a government that was rancid and festering. Corruption ran amok the entire duration of Long Island City up until the beginning of the 20th century. Wait, who was in charge? Who was even mayor at this point? The first mayor was named Abram Dittmars, oh. who was a relation to Dr. Doctor. D- Doe Dittmars. <laughs> but the machine Democrats of Tammany Hall did not think he was sufficiently corruptible. In fact, in 1875, he was reelected, went to a council meeting, saw that it was so corrupt that he actually resigned. He was like, I can't even work with them. It's that corrupt. Tom, let me tell you about another mayor named Henry S. Debevoir, who had several several non-consecutive years in office between the 1870s and 80s, starting in 1873. He really developed a fabulously corrupt system of graft. He shored up so much power in in his various times in office and filled these different slots with so many Tammany Hall cronies. It was really impossible for anyone to get rid of their influence. So terrible guy, Debevoir, right? It can't possibly get worse, can it? Uh oh. <laughs> well, you have a crazy look on your face. What happened? He is followed up by a man who was mayor for from 1887 to 1897. His name was Patrick Jerome Gleason, but everybody called him Patty. Patty Gleason was born in Ireland in 1844, but by age 43 in 1887, he presided over. Long Island City here as basically the Boss Tweed of Long Island. Boss Patty. <laughs> boss Patty. To quote again from this book, uh, 300 Years of Long Island City, which was a, a wonderful read, quote, he made himself absolute master of the city government and not only returned the municipal administration to the corrupt ways of the Debevoir regime, but greatly improved on the former mayor and the scale of his corruption. At one point... Gleason was both the mayor and also an alderman. He then made himself the head of the water board, the head of the police department, the head of the fire department, and the head of the board of education. 
those divisions that he was not the head of, he squeezed out the existing office holders and installed cronies that were beholden to him. So Gleason was basically in charge of everything in Long Island City. Every single thing reported to him and benefited him financially. Uh, He was, this may not be a surprise, he was a, a kind of a rough vulgar individual, frequently lobbed curse words at some of his own constituents. He picked fights with both individuals and corporations, most famously in 1888 with the Long Island Railroad. He attacked them ostensibly for blocking city streets with their trains. They were blocking streets, but but he had some rather unconventional ways of dealing with them. He literally attacked them. He wielding an axe, he and 12 men went to the Long Island Railroad fences, chopped up the fences, tore up the tracks, and then arrested an engineer who was just doing his job. Meanwhile, Gleason owned a streetcar company and was also blocking the roads with his own cars. (laughs) Because of this, he gained his famous nickname, Battleaxe Gleason. Battleaxe Gleason. And how long was old Battleaxe in charge? Until New York consolidated in 1898 and Long Island City was essentially dissolved as an independent city. He died in 1901. Here's a quote from his obituary in the New York Times. Quote, His position as mayor was more absolute than that of many a dictator. He leased and sold his land to the city largely on his own terms. He simply regarded Long Island City as his own and acted accordingly. But big changes are happening here. With consolidation on January 1st, 1898, came the creation of the borough of Queens and a new direction for the neighborhood of Astoria. And those changes would incorporate Astoria into the city of New York. And we'll get to Astoria in the 20th century after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, 
and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night, student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. Okay, so here we are in the 20th century, Greg, um, and Astoria and Long Island City have both been folded into New York City. So now instead of being an independent city, Mm -hmm. they are merely a neighborhood in a borough in the area of greater New York. However, they may have lost that independence, but they benefit greatly from this new association. And they would benefit greatly in the early 20th century in a number of ways, uh, including through increased access to the city, whereas it was, say, cost prohibitive for this city of Long Island City to construct bridges, for example, to New York. Uh, well, now that it was part of the same city, it would be the city of New York that could fund those endeavors mm-hmm. instead of, you know, the two having to, to share the cost. Mm-hmm. Take, for example, the Queensboro Bridge. Private companies had been trying to finance the construction of such a bridge for decades in the late 19th century, but they couldn't get the financing to work. However, because of the consolidation, it was suddenly in the city's interest to connect its boroughs in this way. So construction of the Queensboro Bridge was pretty much immediately underway, and it was finished in 1909, connecting Long Island City with East Midtown in Manhattan at 59th Street, leading to Manhattanites giving it the nickname the 59th Street Bridge. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very Manhattan-centric name, the 59th Street Bridge. On this side of the East River, we'll call it the Queensboro Bridge. Yeah, uh, over in Queens, the residents were feeling not so groovy. Simon and Garfunkel reference, that's good. Feeling groovy, also called the 59th Street Bridge bridge song. But what no one calls it is the Ed Koch Queensboro Bridge. Which is its official (laughs) name today. But its construction here in the first decade of the 20th century was not unusual because the city was also constructing the Williamsburg Bridge, which opened in 1903, and the Manhattan Bridge, which also opened for traffic the same year as the Queensboro Bridge, 1909. Well, that's the Queensboro Bridge. How does the subway get into Queens? Well, there was actually a trolley that ran across the Queensboro Bridge when it opened, and it would stop right above Welfare Island, today's Roosevelt Island, and passengers could hop off and take an elevator down to visit the island, which we talked about in our Roosevelt Island episode. But in terms of the actual subway, the IRT elevated train came to Astoria in 1917. 
in February of that year, it opened its elevated line above 31st Street with its terminus in Queensboro Plaza. That same year, a few months later, in June, the IRT connected from Queensboro Plaza across the Queensboro Bridge to connect in with Manhattan's 2nd Avenue elevated. So at this point, then, you could hop on a train at Queensboro Plaza and make your way over to Manhattan and down 2nd Avenue. The easiest way yet for people to get from Manhattan to Queens. Right. And a few years later, in 1920, the BMT trains were now able to take the new 60th Street Tunnel across to Queensboro Plaza. And those aren't the only subways that get you to Astoria either. No, because in the 1930s, the independent line would open and start serving Astoria as well. So all of these different ways now to get into Queens, and that's just through Manhattan. But then the other big player here, uh, transit-wise, is the Triborough Bridge, uh, which opened on January 11th, 1936, linking Manhattan, the Bronx, and Queens in a giant Y-shaped uh, three-borough bridge, <laughs> Triborough Bridge, uh, passing over Randall's and Ward's Islands. You know, the Triborough Bridge deserves its own podcast because it's so dramatic. I mean, you want to talk about a miniseries uh, for the CW. <laughs> there it is. It, it was such an enormous project. It had been discussed since the 19-teens and even planned by the city to really get started in the 1920s. In fact, Greg, I have, um, I have with me here an article from The Times the day after the groundbreaking for the construction Published on October 26, 1929, Jimmy Walker opens work on Triborough Span. He was standing in a, in a ceremony in Astoria Park, over which the Triborough Bridge would span. He was greatly praised. There's a nice little photo of him here with a shovel um, getting ready to start construction. Unfortunately for those involved, this ceremony took place on October 25th, 1929, also known as Black Friday, which we discussed in our recent episode on the Wall Street crash. But it's interesting that this project was a Jimmy Walker project, that it was the nightmare of New York City that really kicked this off, because, of course, we mostly associate this with Robert Moses. Right, because, you know, obviously the Depression would stall, not completely kill, but greatly stall this project for many years. And it would be Moses who took over the project in the early 1930s and created the Triborough Bridge Authority to oversee its construction and its operation. Moses is obviously the guy you go to to get a bridge built in New York City. Right. Or approaches or expressways, you know, because all of these things were needed, too, on the Manhattan, the Bronx and the Queens sides. Construction on the bridge was restarted in 1933 and $60 million later at a drama packed dedication ceremony, which was hosted by Robert Moses they opened the bridge on July 11th, 1936. He was accompanied by Mayor LaGuardia and President Franklin Roosevelt, among others. And there was one other person there, perhaps one of the most famous people born in Astoria, Queens, a, a young boy, a singer named Anthony Benedetto. We know him today as Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett was at... He sang at the opening... Tony Bennett sang at the opening of the Triborough Bridge? Yes, as a young teenager. That is a fantastic detail. <laughs> that is the most New York City-centered trivia fact ever. 
but only if you can give his full original family name. Anthony Dominic Benedetto. And then there's one other really significant, very dramatic bridge that's a little over 100 years ago, right? It, that's the Hellgate Bridge. That's right. That is a gorgeous railroad bridge that crosses the Hellgate just north of the Triborough Bridge. And this bridge basically allows trains to descend upon New York through the Bronx, across and swooping all around Astoria before heading into a tunnel in Long Island City and into Midtown Manhattan. If you've ever taken the Amtrak from Penn Station to Boston, you've crossed over this Hellgate Bridge. It's a pretty bridge uh, Mm -hmm. designed by Gustav Lindenthal, and construction began in 1912, and it was open to train traffic in early 1917. So yes, 100 years ago Mm -hmm. this year. Interestingly, both these bridges, the Hellgate and the Triborough, go over Astoria via Astoria Park, which is along the waterfront, and it's kind of an old park, Right. right? Predating these bridges, uh, the the park dates back from 1913 when the city uh, bought up land here to construct a 56-acre park. It was originally named after New York's mayor at the time, William J. Gaynor, and was eventually renamed Astoria Park in December 1913. 23 years later, in 1936, in the midst of the Great Depression, and the same year that the Triborough Bridge opened over it, Robert Moses, wearing a different hat as the city's parks commissioner, redeveloped the park and built the city's largest swimming pool here, which opened on July 4th, 1936, and was immediately used to host trials for the 1936 Olympics. I would say it's one of the most famous swimming pools in America. It is amazingly large. (laughs) It's been heavily used, but it's still beautiful. So that's the infrastructural history of this whole area. And so as a result, the population rapidly expanded uh, during that first half of the 20th century. And settling here remained convenient to the city, but also pretty affordable. And this was very attractive to to large ethnic communities. The, The Irish had already settled here by the late 19th century. But in the early 20th century, there were significant Uh, numbers of Czechs and Slovaks who were drawn to Astoria. And to assist them in their reacclimation, there were new organizations and aid groups that were formed to help in that process. A notable example being the Bohemian Citizens Benevolence Society, which was established in 1892 to assist the Czech and Slovak immigrants immigrating in large numbers from Austria-Hungary. Bohemia, by the way, taking its name after the medieval kingdom of Bohemia. In 1910, that organization uh, raised funds and they bought two farms that were along 24th Avenue in Astoria. And there they constructed lovely Bohemian Hall. In 1919, they opened their famous beer garden the same year that Prohibition went into effect. (laughs) However, it did uh, survive Prohibition, obviously, as anybody who has read their Yelp reviews can attest to. They are (laughs) happily still around, and they're a fine example of a surprisingly large outdoor beer garden Mm -hmm. in New York City. Now, beer gardens are all the rage now here in New York City, but you will not find one as famous as the Bohemian Hall beer garden. And it wasn't really that unusual back in the day because 100 years ago, there were 800 beer gardens in New York City. Can you imagine if there were 800 (laughs) beer gardens today? I (laughs) wish. After the wave of Czechs and Slovaks, many Italians immigrated to the neighborhood, especially after World War II. 
uh, many of them settling in the Dittmars neighborhood. And the 1960s is notable for the large influx of Greeks who arrived to New York City and and they would arrive in massive numbers and settle here in Astoria uh, and build many cultural institutions, including St. Demetrios Cathedral, which is the largest Greek cathedral outside of Greece. Amidst all of this, there is a, a very interesting anomaly, a glorious and glamorous anomaly, wouldn't mm-hmm. you say? A famous one. A famous one. <laughs> very famous. A famous player. Yes, that would be the film studio built by famous players Lasky and later used by Paramount in the 1920s, a subject that we went into great detail discussing a couple years ago in our episode on New York and the birth of the movies. Remember that in the 1920s, studios and the whole film business was starting to shift out west. However, many still believe that it should stay here in New York City, close to all of the talent that was appearing on Broadway. That's where the stars were. Throughout the 1920s, there were many full-length features that were shot here at Famous Players Lasky, including the Marx Brothers' two first full-length features. Um, Rudolph Valentino shot movies mm-hmm. here. Paramount would pull out of Queens in 1932, but the studio remained in use and active, as we discussed in that show. It was used by the Army uh, to make training films during World War II, and then again, it went private in the 1970s when such New York-based films such as Hair and The Wiz were shot here. And it remained a vital presence even into the TV generation, the TV era, with Sesame Street and The Cosby Show. Judge Judy. <laughs> Judge Judy went to work every morning at Kaufman Astoria Studios. Not an actual courthouse. Right, you said Kaufman Astoria Studios because it was renamed after, yeah. after developer George Kaufman in 1982. And yes, it still remains open today. One part of it houses today's Museum of the Moving Image, which is a fascinating uh, museum, well worth anybody's time to visit. We've been spending a lot of time here on the northern part of this district. It sounds very vibrant, Mm -hmm. very active, very exciting. Well, you know, if we're going to go back to this idea of Long Island City... You know, that there's sort of a dual personality kind of happening here. Because I'm just talking Astoria here. Well, I'd like to reflect on these two identities, sort of as siblings, as the southern side being on a completely opposite urban track from the northern side, right? Okay. So that Hunter's Point section got incredibly industrial. As we know from New York City history, industrial areas in the mid-20th century don't fare very well because a lot of those industries are moving out. By 1961, Hunter's Point, or the southern part of the area we've been talking about, is zoned as entirely industrial. Within a decade, however, the waterfront has completely deteriorated and was essentially abandoned. So zoned industrial, but there was no industry there. No, no very so little. So just yes. kind of abandoned, kind of like what we discussed in Soho. Well, yeah. And so s- similar to Soho, what happens? But the Bohemians come. Not not the Bohemians you were talking <laughs> Up about. Up at the beer garden? <laughs> no, the artists. Uh, the artists arrive. In 1971, an art group was formed called the Institute of Art and Urban Resources, which was similar to what was happening in Soho. They were looking to transform unused large spaces in New York for 
possible art exhibition and creation. So back in 1892, Patty Gleason, remember him, head of the Board of Education, a red brick school building was constructed under his tenure in 1892. Today, we know that as PS1. That school was left abandoned in 1963, so there was no, there were no students at all by the 1960s. Well, this group, the Institute of Art and Urban Resources, they moved in in 1976 and turned PS1 into an exhibition space. Their first exhibition, actually, that year was called Rooms, featuring audiovisual presentations that were tied into the heritage of the school itself. Wow, that's so cool. And this is the same PS1 that is today part of MoMA. Yeah. In 2000, PS1 then became associated with the Museum of Modern Art. And so today it's MoMA PS1. But by this time, PS1 had helped kind of kick off a new interesting trend down here in Hunter's Point, Long Island City. The idea of an alternative enclave of little bars and restaurants that started to kind of popped up all around the neighborhood. But to be clear, when this group opened their their artistic space here in the 1970s, yeah. they were surrounded by abandoned industrial buildings. That was almost the entire purpose of this neighborhood. So this was another little artistic anomaly a little bit like the film studio, but this would change the culture of this neighborhood slowly but surely. There's two other cultural landmarks I want to mention. In 1985, the sculptor Isamu Noguchi opened the Noguchi Museum, and that's well within the old Astoria neighborhood. The following year, another sculptor named Mark De Severo opened the Socrates Sculpture Garden, which is just north of it. Wow, all this new cultural activity happening in Astoria and Long Island City, but isn't the real action happening down on the waterfront? Yeah, I mean, along the waterfront, the Hunter's Point Long Island City waterfront that used to be heavily industrial, by the 1980s, the city is planning to redevelop it via the Queens West Development Corporation. And the whole purpose is to create a brand new residential area of completely brand new condominiums that have waterfront views basically facing into Manhattan. That kind of makes me think of Battery Park City. It is a parallel to Battery Park City in terms of its development and the architectural style is is very, very similar. Starting in the 1980s and really ramping up beginning in the 1990s, this seedy industrial waterfront that, you know, that Gleason lorded over is today a promenade with extraordinary views and towers filled with thousands of residents. I found a quote from a very prescient quote from the New York Times in 1996 regarding Hunter's Point. Quote, What this little corner of Long Island City will be like in 10 years is anybody's guess. This is 1996. Mm. Its future is a topic of great debate and much dismay among its 5,000 or so residents who seem for the most part delighted with their little enclave as it is. A place where century-old brownstones meticulously maintained rub up against drab factories and boxy warehouses. Well, that was in 1996. I wonder how those (laughs) residents feel today. Uh, What's amazing is that there's a touch of history there because all of these 
condominiums, all of these residential towers are situated around a gigantic Pepsi Cola sign. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure there are listeners who are wondering when we were going to get to the Pepsi sign. It was it was built in 1940. And actually, it was it's the last vestige of an actual bottling plant. That was right here on the edge of Hunter's Point. And the sign itself was actually landmarked in 2016. I'm really interested, though, in like an alternate world, wondering what would have happened to the Pepsi sign if in 2012, if New York City had hosted the Summer Olympics because Hunter's Point and this area of Long Island City was supposed to be Olympic Village. But alas, the bid went to London. Uh, with all these big prospects now changing the face here of Long Island City, even big industries were eyeing Queens for a new home. In 1983, the old Silver Cup Baking Company was transformed into another TV and film production studio, which today is called Silver Cup Studios. Isn't that where they they shoot girls or is it 30 yeah, Rock? Yeah, the, both of those were filmed here and a personal favorite of mine, Elementary is also filmed here. But that's not all, Tom. Just a short distance from the Silver Cup is perhaps the most curious new resident of Queens during the 1980s and 1990s, that ubiquitous tower on the skyline, which we call One Court Square today, the Citigroup Building. The giant green glassy skyscraper. <laughs> you you can't miss it. It's like for many, many years, it was the only thing on the Queen's skyline. Today, at 50 stories, it's the tallest building in New York City outside of Manhattan. For now. <laughs> for now. That could change this, by press time. Yeah, this podcast could date very badly, Greg. <laughs> so this week, Tom and I went on an epic walk from the southern portion of Hunter's Point all the way up to Dittmar's Steinway and all through all of these different kinds of neighborhoods. Do you remember how dramatic the sort of like the street life, the culture changes from one neighborhood to the next? Oh, absolutely. There was a long stretch. And of course, we were doing this, if you're listening in real time, we were doing this on Monday when it was like 95 degrees out, yeah, which was yeah. very strange. But we were walking along Vernon Boulevard Once we had left the new development at Hunter's Point South, Queens West, we walked up uh, Vernon Boulevard, and you really do get right back into the thick of industry. Mm -hmm. We walked past printing plants. We walked, of course, past an enormous uh, power station for a good while, Mm -hmm. and then suddenly came upon the parks of Astoria along the water. I mean, you can wander through the streets of Astoria today, northern Astoria, central Astoria, and see businesses from a wide variety of different nationalities and ethnicities, Croatian, Serbian, Italian, Irish, Bangladeshi, Mexican. Astoria is is still said to be the home of the largest population of Greek people outside of Athens. Two places to visit. Well, the first place is a specific place. Athens Square at 30th Avenue and 30th Street that has statues of Sophocles, Socrates, a bust of Aristotle, and a statue of Athena that was given to Astoria by the mayor of Athens himself in 1998. It's a beautiful park. After going to the park, then go to a Greek restaurant. I mean, I... I There are many to choose from. There are many. I like Gregory's, of course. It's a nice (laughs) one. But Xenon... 
mm-hmm. is a good one. Taverna Kyclades is great, but I mean, there I don't are, think there are Greek food trucks yes. along 31st. And there's a very festive party scene, may I say, on 30th Avenue between 31st and Steinway. Or you could just wander into Titan Foods, which is a Greek supermarket on 31st Street, and it will literally transport you to Greece. Now, right off of Steinway at around 30th Avenue is one final district that I think you all should visit is Little Egypt, which is a nickname for the Arab district, which is actually businesses, restaurants owned by people from many different countries, including Lebanon, Syria, Yemen. This area started developing in the 1970s, and I have had many a kebab in Little (laughs) Egypt during my wanderings through Astoria, and they were all delicious. So to summarize, Long Island City and Astoria, they're the yin and yang of urban development. They both have extraordinary things to offer, so much history that still lives on the streets, and so much to taste and experience. As you wander around, we we wholeheartedly recommend just getting off anywhere, really, wandering and keeping your eyes open to all these different cultures, institutions, restaurants, shops. It's all right there before you. If you live there, most likely you already love your neighborhood. But if you've never been there or have been there only seldomly, take a subway, take one of those new ferries, just drive over and spend a day wandering through the history of Astoria and Long Island City. To take a deeper dive into the history of Astoria and Long Island City, you should also stop by the Greater Astoria Historical Society. Check out their website, AstoriaLIC.org, for their opening hours, for their special events and exhibitions, and for their own walking tours. And some of those walking tours are actually led by Kevin Walsh from Forgotten New York, which hopefully you all know and love as well. So we want to thank them because they were very invaluable in helping us with our research for this show. You can check out our blog at BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have some old pictures of old Astoria Village, <laughs> Hunter's Point slash Long Island City, with the, its, its abominable name of Long Island City. <laughs> Battleaxe Gleason. <laughs> Do you have any of him? Well, the funny thing is a lot of newspapers refused to publish his picture because oh. they didn't want to give him press. He was that nasty. That's a tradition that should be <laughs> kept up to this day. And we'd like to send a special thanks to our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash boys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash boys. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access free additional audio downloads and show your support of the Bowery Boys, which has been invaluable as we've ramped up production of the show. And finally, check out the Bowery Boys spinoff podcast, The First Stories of Inventions and Their Consequences. This week's show is going to focus on the peanut man himself, George Washington Carver. We'd like to thank Kieran Gannon for helping out with the show and editing and basically being the, the sane one <laughs> <laughs> as we put together these shows with this ramped up schedule. So thank you, thank Kieran. You, Kieran. And thank you, listener, for joining us on this romp through Astoria and Long Island City. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Hey. 
Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more.